At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Good morning, Roxy Soxy. Good morning, Tam Tam. It's actually the morning. It's actually the morning, and I, I haven't mean, left for four days because your hometown in Texas is frozen <laughs> over, so no one knows how to live in Texas with the cold. I mean, it is legit, like, a real deal. My parents- It's a real deal. Yeah, their power went out, so they, yep. my sister had to go pick them up and, like, I know. take them to her house. I mean, it's, like, kind of scary there right now, yeah, right? Yeah, but people are kind of being mean about it. Like, I've just been in Austin for two months, so, like, this is not my- I don't, I don't know how much snow Texas normally gets, which is zero. <laughs> Zero. But like North Texas is like, you guys should have been prepared for it. But it's like telling Californians to be prepared for a tornado. Yeah. This doesn't happen. So people don't understand why there is no like gas stoves and there are no like extra like generators for things like this to happen. Everyone is freezing their asses and tits off because they don't have any backup. No, and they cannot drive in this weather. That's like another okay. thing. People should just not drive. Just don't, don't drive. drive. Don't do it. Just, just don't, don't do, do it. it. <laughs> we were in Montana and like we started to slip and it's like a real thing. You need to know what to do when you're in that car and you start slipping. You're supposed to pump the brakes, by the way. It's stuff that you learn when you're on the road. You're supposed to pump the brakes, not slam the brakes. If you slam the brakes, you're off the road. Yeah, man, I can see your future now. You are an ice driver. You're an ice driver. <laughs> I'm ice truckers. <laughs> yeah, My new sure. show right now, Roxy, is called Ice Truckers. Yeah, we can we can shoot ooh, we can shoot the podcast from the bed of the truck. Yeah. <laughs> and someone else who's on today who is not an ice trucker. Do you see? <laughs> right. My segues are just the best. Is Ashley Stock from Little Miss Mama. She was she started as a blogger, but mm. she's so much more than that. She's actually I found out about her recently because, um, and I'll let her explain her story, something tragic happened. And I think a lot of people found out about her in this way. And what I loved about her story um, is how honest and open and vulnerable she was about everything. Not only the good, good, the good, the bad, the ugly, the horrible. And in that way, I felt like I knew her. I felt like she was part of my life and I cried for her and I loved her, which is not something you do for a stranger. So I reached out to her and I said, like, we have to have you on because I feel like you're one of us. I feel like you're our friend. Don't you feel? Yeah, I do. You know, I, we were actually speaking just before we started shooting and, um, Ashley and I have a common friend and I remember, um, she posted something that Ashley had posted a repost. And mm -hmm. just ever since I read that social media post, I literally, felt so connected to this family. I wanted mm -hmm. to do whatever I could to help and to learn more. And she just, she just, um, Ashley, Ashley, who we have on the show today has just an amazing power to connect people. Mm -hmm. And it just really, you know, just want to take them in and like hug them. And I mean, she's amazing. She's absolutely amazing. Well, without further ado, we should introduce Ashley Stark. Yay, Ashley. Oh, gosh, we want to start me off crying, you guys, with that introduction. <laughs> gosh. I was... cried uh, last, and you know, I, I, I don't know if uh, some people might know your story. And I, I don't know 
it's hard for interviews like this or podcasts like this because, you know, and I'm sure you've heard this before, you don't know what to say mm-hmm. because, um, and again, I'll let you share your story, but I told my husband your story last night and I just sobbed for an hour. And there must be a part of you that doesn't want in a way to just be defined by that as well. So it's it's hard to even know as 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 mamas as well, like how to even talk about something like this. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, you 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 said so many of the thoughts that um, you know, when you're faced with the unthinkable that um race through your mind about like, okay, so this is my life now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And unfortunately, there may be things I don't want to be defined as, and I could spend the rest of my life fighting that. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is um, I will be defined by this because it's the single, you know, most defining moment of my life. And I think that there has been so much peace and just accepting that for now, this portion of my story is how I'll be defined for a while and mm-hmm. deciding, okay, so what am I going to do with that? What am I supposed to learn from that? What am I supposed to teach? Where am I supposed to be a better listener? Because I am now defined by this. I mm-hmm. I said to my husband, like shortly after, I remember she had probably been um, gone about six weeks. And I said, I'm just now always the mom who lost her daughter. Mm-hmm. And with somebody is like, oh, you know, Ashley, you haven't met her yet. She's the one whose daughter died. Like, right. like that played on my head and repeat and it just made me want to vomit that that's how I'll forever be described. But it's how I've described people, mm-hmm. you know, we've all done it. And I kind of realized in that moment that I wanted it to be, you know, she's the mom who lost her daughter mm-hmm. and shares really openly about it. And or I want to be described as, you know, she's the mom who lost her daughter and is trying to teach other people to embrace pain and see it as a blessing. Mm-hmm. And she's the mom who lost her daughter and lived to tell about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like that was the choice that I made because I will forever be defined by this. You know, uh, just going back a little bit, and for those that may not know uh, Little Miss Mama and may not follow you on social media, do you mind just kind of letting people know what happened um, last yeah. year? Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, this to make a long story short, mm-hmm. um, the the real story, I guess, my story kind of begins when I first became a mom, which was 11 years ago. And I was very committed to work and passionate about public relations and loved my job. And when I got pregnant, I got hyperemesis. So I was incredibly sick, ended up quitting my job and staying in bed for nine months, falling into like a deep, dark pit of depression, followed by postpartum depression and being absolutely convinced that I was not cut out for mothering. I loved my son so freaking much. And it was, he was the best thing to ever happen to me. Um, But it was so lonely. And I thought I was so bad at it. And my son didn't sleep. And he had a lot of, you know, challenges getting him to eat and he was anxious and crying all the time. And we would later learn that my son had autism, but at that time he was my first and he was my only gauge. And I was just certain that I was failing at this. Mm -hmm. And um, it was an incredibly lonely place. And 
my husband was working all the time and I was home feeling like a failure. And Mm -hmm. I discovered this world of blogging. Mm -hmm. And this was before it was anything like it was today. This is when it was on Google Blogspot and everything looked archaic and you just kind of like clicked through <laughs> and read about- When random- MySpace was available. Yes, <laughs> literally. That's exactly when. And you would just become engrossed in these families' lives and they were complete strangers. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling less alone as I read more about some random mom and North Carolina or in Virginia whose kid wasn't sleeping either. And then I was like, well, maybe I should do this. Maybe mm-hmm. I should write. And it what started off as a release to feel less alone and to kind of find community um, eventually became a full-time job as the landscape of blogging changed. And um, I eventually had my second son and then I had my daughter Stevie and I was blogging on and off through this entire time. Then came the, you know, the birth of Instagram and I jumped into that, um, into that platform as well and just shared those more vulnerable parts of my life. I shared our journey with autism. You know, I tried to do that as delicately as possible while also trying to do for other women what had been done for me and make them feel less alone. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of my vulnerable sharing online and putting myself out there and sharing that which was, you know, most traumatic or most sacred or most heartfelt for me, knowing that it could be misunderstood mm-hmm. and putting it out there anyway, because if I was going to be misunderstood, knowing that a couple other moms were going to feel empowered, mm-hmm. it was going to be worth it. And it was um, almost a year ago that my daughter started showing signs of what we thought was autism again. And she, it was actually a little over a year ago and we had her evaluated. We had blood work done. We went to neurologists. We did all the things and everything kind of came back as, well, you know, she just has a little bit of a speech delay and she just has some sensory processing stuff she's dealing with. And none of this was new to me because I'd been down this whole road with my son, but my gut was telling me there was more. Mm -hmm. And my gut was telling me this was different. And we were in the height of COVID lockdown, the height, the height. This is when people were freaking out the most. You couldn't get into any doctors. You could barely get into a grocery store. Nothing was happening. And I was watching her motor skills deteriorate like by the hour. And I finally called the pediatrician on FaceTime and I was like, look, she's walking crooked now. And she said, get her in the car and take her to Children's Hospital right now in Los Angeles. And it was the night before Easter and it was 7 p.m. at night. And we were terrified to go to an ER because they weren't even letting people in. And you were getting like sequestered and like put in a little room by yourself. Mm -hmm. And my daughter was not a fan of hospitals or doctor's offices. And only one of us could go. So my husband stayed home with the boys and I drove her down to downtown LA. And I just remember, you know, she's sitting in the backseat in her high chair with her blankie and her baba and her stuffed animal and behaving perfectly normally. And I remember squeezing, like squeezing the steering wheel so, so tight and just knowing that I was driving into a new chapter of my life. 
I just knew. And um, when we were there, we were in the ER for a long time and they did a scan. And after they did the scan, I'm in the room with her and we're waiting forever and a social worker walks in. And that was when my gut bottomed out because it wasn't a doctor, it was a social worker. And then she brought like um, a behavior therapist in with her. And she's like, you know, this, I don't remember the girl's name because I went blank at that point. And she's like, this behavior therapist is going to sit with Stevie while we go talk to the doctors. And I wasn't dumb, you know, I knew why they were bringing a social worker. I was there by myself and they were likely going to deliver some horrible news. And, you know, I was going to need support. And it was, it probably was five minutes before I was in the room with the doctors, but it felt like five days of like, okay, well, you're here. Where are the doctors? When is this going to happen? I remember walking away from Stevie. It's my daughter's name in, um, her little hospital room and I had just gotten her to sleep because there's no way she would have let me leave her with a stranger and tiptoeing out with a social worker following and um, going into this tiny conference room with no windows. And there were probably five doctors all with masks on. And I sat down and they handed me a box of tissues mm -hmm. and the doctor who was talking, I remember specifically like he grabbed his mask and this is when nobody took off their masks and he, he just pulled it down below his chin. And when I saw his face, I was just like, I mean, you can't, our listeners can't see me, but I just, I just put my um, head in my hands and just waited and listened. And I didn't cry right then. I remember like numbing out. And I remember, it's so weird, you go out of your body and because I think it was my body's way of protecting me. Mm -hmm. So I had to like disengage for a minute. And I remember looking at the social worker and thinking, she's probably wondering why I'm not crying. Yeah. Like, should I make her feel more comfortable? Like I remember thinking, how should I make everyone else in this room feel more comfortable? Because they all must be, crawling out of their skin with what they just told me and I'm alone and I'm completely alone in my daughter's in the other room. And my husband's not here. And I remember like stepping out of that place. And then I remember the social worker putting her hand on my leg and all of a sudden, like I came back into my body again. And, um, you know, at that point we didn't know the full prognosis. We just knew that she had a large tumor on her brain. Um, that, was cancer. And, you know, I can in hindsight, look back and I can replay that moment. And I could see that they already knew just from that initial scan, what type of cancer she had, they had to do more tests to confirm. So they didn't tell us in that moment. But from the look on their faces, like I knew they knew already what it was, which is she had DIPG, which is um, a brain tumor with a 0% survival rate. And no treatment. I mean, there are things you can do to try to ease the pain or extend life by a couple weeks, a couple months. There have been some people who have extended um, up to a year with a really, really low quality of life. And usually their kids were a little bit older, but it was a diagnosis with no hope. And I remember talking to my husband and saying, 
I feel so ignorant that I didn't even know this existed, Mm -hmm. that I didn't even know there was a type of cancer with 0%. I knew that there were 5% chances of survival. And I had no idea they were going to look at me and say, we can't operate. We can't treat, like, we can't really do anything, Ashley. Like, this is it. I just remember being like, what do you mean? (laughs) There's nothing you can do. Um, I would say that the hardest part of that was then, because this is, my heart has a really soft spot for any parents or anybody losing a loved one during the pandemic, Mm. because it was at this point that I had to do like what not a lot of other parents in the situation have to do. I mean, I know there are many, but this was a little more unique because I had to pick up the phone and I had to deliver the worst possible news that I had ever received in my life. And I had to now re-deliver it to the person I loved more than anything. And I had to tell my husband that his daughter was dying after mm-hmm. I had just received it alone. And that, that, let me just say that that is something that I have to deal with in therapy on a regular basis. Cause that was probably one of the more traumatic parts of the entire experience was receiving the information alone and then having to tell my husband and not be with him and not be able to be with him. And we weren't able to be together when we told our kids because one of us was with Stevie and only one of us could be with her at a time in the hospital. Um, So I remember switching off knowing, like just feeling in my heart that I was the one that needed to tell them. And I remember leaving Stevie for the first time coming home while he stayed with her for a couple hours and telling the boys, which was nothing I wish on any parent ever. Um, And then I went back to be with her. And after what's a very long story, after meeting with every doctor and talking with every specialist and having incredible friends um, who got us in touch with the best of the best all over the world and talking with all of them on the phone, my husband and I looked at each other and we said, we're bringing her home. We're not keeping her here. We're not doing all of those aggressive treatments that will not eliminate this, but might just give her a couple extra weeks of us with us, but in pain, mm-hmm. we're going to take her home and we're going to let her be with the boys and her dogs and lay on her couch. And she was miserable at the hospital. And we're going to let her eat what she wants to eat and watch what she wants to watch and be on her iPad the whole time if she wants to. And, you know, we're going to break all the rules and just give her every single thing for as long as we have left. And we brought her home and walking back into our house with her, knowing what we were about to do and what we were about to face and not knowing if we had six days, six weeks or six months left with her was there aren't really words for that uncertainty. And, you know, we crossed that threshold into our home and we had six weeks left with her. And she had a couple of weeks where she came, like, would come back to us fully as herself. And that was just her final gift to us. And that, you know, that was a huge blessing was getting to see little bits of her again. And then it was a really, really fast decline. And that's the way that this stupid ass cancer works is it, when it grows, it grows fast. And you, it can also just stop on a dime and it could grow for like three days and she could be sick and throwing up and having seizures. And then for a week she's back to herself, but it's still that size. It's just not pushing on that 
specific part of her brain. And then it, you know, once it got, once it got too large, it was a very, very, very fast decline. And she passed away on May 27th in our home, in our arms. And, um, you know, it was, it was tragic, but it wasn't traumatic. It was beautiful. And when she was born, we didn't name her after Stevie Nicks. We actually named her after Stevie from Schitt's Creek. Oh my gosh. <laughs> because, because I watched that show in the bath the entire time I was pregnant. So everybody would always ask, is she named after Stevie Nicks? And I was like, no, no. But when I delivered her, I she was a C-section. And when you're having a C-section, you're in a surgical room and the yeah. surgeons always pick the music. It's not like... And depending on who the surgeon and the anesthesiologist are, you know, you may have one who takes your taste into consideration (laughs) or they may be playing like punk rock while you're delivering your baby. And you're like, can we turn it down a little? Yeah, right. (laughs) And I've had with three kids and three C-sections, I've had every version. And when it was Stevie, I remember them asking me, what do you want to listen to? We have Pandora. So just tell us what kind of music you like. And I was like, how about some classic rock? And so they play it. I zone out you know, the C-section begins and right as she is pulled out and we have video of this, she's pulled out, they're checking her, they put her on my chest and my mom who is filming from her phone, she's like, is that Stevie Nicks playing? And Landslide was playing um, over and you see me like crying and I'm holding Stevie and like ugly tears. I'm like, it's Landslide, it's Stevie Nicks, oh my gosh. And so she came into the world to Stevie Nicks. And, you know, when we, when we could tell it was time, we had the most amazing set of hospice nurses who had been with us through the whole time. And we lit candles because they told us, you know, she was hanging on so tight, even though she was so sick and in so much pain. And we just kept telling her, you can go, baby, like, just go. So we lit candles and we kept telling her, you can go to the light, like it's okay. And she's she's not communicating at this point, like she can't talk anymore. And, you know, we had Landslide just playing on repeat for hours and hours and hours, just over and over and over. Um, and so she came into the world with that song and she went out of the world with that song. But the hardest part of that experience was that, in the, she was definitely a daddy's girl and her and I had a very different type of connection, but she was a daddy's girl and she knew how broken he was because of this, even though she was only three and she would always, even when she was sickest and she would like have a seizure and then she would come out of it and she'd put her hand on his cheek and be like, you okay? You okay, daddy? And she wasn't very verbal. So, you know, those words were a lot and on her final day, you know, we're holding her and she stopped breathing several times. Like her heart would stop and she would stop breathing. And as impossible as that was as a mother, it was such a relief. It was just like, thank you. You're not in pain anymore. You're not suffering anymore. And then my husband would say like, I love you, honey. You know, you're going to be okay. And she would come back and she would just like, (gasps) and she would come back and it was I mean, this happened for hours Mm. and it was, 
anytime she felt his touch or she would hear his voice, she'd come back after minutes. And finally, I remember holding her and looking at him and it wasn't even like words were said. And he just nodded his head. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but you have to. And we were sitting on our couch and he walked into the backyard. And I just remember him like having his hands on top of his head and bending over. And the second he walked outside, she stopped breathing again and then stayed. And that was it. And I just knew, you know, I just whispered to her like, it's okay. He's going to be okay. He'll be okay. I'll take care of him. You can go now. And then she stopped breathing. Um, and she was just holding on for him, you know, because she didn't think he was ready. And to me, you know, when you're a mom who now has every second to relive those moments and process them, and I'm trying to write about them because I just, I don't want to ever forget anything about her life. And we're already forgetting so damn much and we hate it. It, it sucks. It sucks to forget it. So I'm trying to write as much of it as I possibly can, which makes me go back to that time. And I have now I'm processing it from the outside, from a very different perspective. And I, I look at, you know, those final hours of her life and I see somebody who, even though she was only three years old, had such a divine purpose in our family, in this world, in life, and perhaps always knew, you know, I think that she always knew that it was just going to be a little bit. And um, for her to be so aware of him in that moment when she was in so much pain and so aware of where he was at emotionally, to me just indicated her spirit was so much older, so much wiser than three years old. You know, she was so much more in touch with just a greater spiritual capacity than any of us. And you know, I try to just feel so grateful that I got to be the mother of a soul like that. So that's our story. Um, as far as that story going viral a bit, that is because, you know, I've been on Instagram for a long time and I do share, I don't, I don't like to be negative, but I like to be real. So I try to share the hard parts of life, but I always try to share the silver lining. I don't, I'm not just like life sucks and I'm so raw and vulnerable and look how shitty everything is like, ha ha, mm -hmm. like let's all commiserate. Um, but I'm going to say something sucks when it sucks, mm -hmm. but I'm going to try to find the silver lining and I'm going to try to find the purpose and the pain. And I was so scared and so alone when we were at the hospital and I had no idea what was going on. And I remember she fell asleep in my arms and being so grateful because she wasn't a kid who fell asleep in people's arms. She wanted to be alone in her bed and she fell asleep in my arms in the waiting room under fluorescent light. And it was this beautiful moment of also sheer terror because we didn't know what was coming. And I took my phone and I took a picture of her to just capture her angelicness. And I posted, we don't know what's going on. We mm -hmm. could really use some prayers. Like we're scared. And then I pulled away and I didn't really realize what happened after that. And I continued to post updates. And one of my best friends called me and she said, you know, we talked about Stevie and she was checking in on me and she said, how are you handling all this media attention? And I remember looking at her being like, 
what media (laughs) attention, like, I don't even know, you know, I watched, I was watching the follower count go up as I was, um, you know, sharing about her, but I wasn't processing it. I wasn't paying attention. It wasn't occurring to me. Where were people coming from? Were people writing articles? Like I, it was the last thing on my mind. And instead, when I saw those numbers increase, I saw the number of people praying for Stevie increasing mm-hmm. and praying for us. And I freaking felt it, you guys. We were raised, like our whole lives, it's all pray for you or we're all praying for you. Oh, and it's just something, just something we say, at least- mm-hmm. I mean, I realize it's not just something we say to everybody, but to me, my whole life, it was just one of those things you say, it's polite. It means you're in my thoughts. I care about you. I don't want you to feel like you're alone. We're all thinking about you. But I had never personally witnessed the power in that Mm -hmm. until this. I did not even, I was in the ultimate trench of my life Mm -hmm. in this moment and fully unaware of the expanse of where this was reaching, fully unaware, yet the energy of it was like, I could touch it. I could touch the energy of people's prayers. I could Mm -hmm. touch the energy of her impact of her story and knowing nobody even had to tell me that Stevie had changed their life or that Stevie's Mm -hmm. story was inspiring them to, you know, count their blessings. No, people didn't have to tell me that for me to feel it so Mm -hmm. thick in the air because I wasn't reading the comments and I wasn't checking my emails and I turned off my DMs and I had to do all of that so I could be present with her. And even though I wasn't aware, I felt it. And Mm -hmm. it it carried us through. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was people signed up for a collective pain Mm -hmm. and I was so, so grateful that they were willing to feel this with me, like on every level. Mm-hmm. How do you, I mean, Roxy and I are bawling because you put yourself in that position. And, you know, last night I even said to my husband, I told my husband your story and he started crying because it's every parent's worst nightmare. Yeah. And he said to me, I don't think I could do it. Like, I don't think I could. I don't, I think I would die. And then like, you just think like, how do you keep going? Mm-hmm. Um, truth, the truth yeah. is you want to die. You do. You want to die every second. Um, you also want to live for her, but you do. And I'm a person who, you know, I have faith that there's more after this life, but I was also always terrified of death, terrified. Mm -hmm. of like, I just don't want to die. And when that day comes, like, I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight it. And I, I can tell you now I am not scared of it. I, if it comes early, I will welcome it. Um, I hesitate to say that. Or because of watching someone. Um, no, because I just want to be with her again. Mm -hmm. Like time is the only thing standing between us now. It's the only thing. And I feel like I'm betraying my two kids who are still very much alive when I say that. But, um, you know, yes, you very much want to die a lot. And especially when it first happens. And that was the first thing that my 11-year-old said to me when I told him. He said, I don't want to live anymore, mom. How are we going to live without her? And that, you know, knowing I was losing my daughter, 
And then hearing my oldest say he didn't want to live. It was, it was a gut punch because I, I wanted to shake him and say, don't you say that. But I also felt exactly the same way. Like he wasn't afraid to say what we were all thinking. And he said, how are we going to live without her? And I just had to be honest with him. And I looked at him and I said, I have no idea, but we are, and we're going to do it together. And you're not going to have to figure it out alone, but I don't know how we're going to do it. I don't, I just know that we will. And um, I will tell you that again, in hindsight, I can look back and I can see how much this was I don't want to say destined to happen because I don't know why that just sounds gross to me, but that this was going to happen because so many things that had happened in our lives had prepared us for this. And I had two specific friends that I'm thinking of on social media who we had met through social media and become friends. And one lost her three-year-old son tragically and unexpectedly And the other's daughter um, had a traumatic brain injury that was a fluke. Like she barely hit her head and it, she went from being a normal seven-year-old girl to unresponsive and it's changed their entire life. And, and I remember watching them and Tamin, exactly what you said, where I looked at my husband and I'm bawling for these women and I'm bawling for their children and their husbands and turning to my husband and saying, I I couldn't do this. I don't know how they're doing this. I don't know how they have the strength. I don't know how they have the faith. I don't know how they keep showing up for their other kids. Like, I don't know how they do this. I could never do this. And I said that I've said that many, many, many times. And um, I've also lived, I've, I'm saying this, I'm going deeper into my story, not to backtrack or to get off point, but to illustrate to women that I don't wish this on anybody, but I, I promise you're stronger than you think. And you could, because this is every parent's worst nightmare. But for me, who has struggled with OCD and anxiety in my entire life, and then severe postpartum, my postpartum didn't look, mine was more more postpartum anxiety where Same. I didn't feel a lack of connection with my child. I felt a debilitating, paralyzing fear that they would die mm. and that I could not go on living without them. And that, it happened the worst with my first. And he came out and it was during the, the swine flu. Do you guys remember the swine flu? Oh my flu? gosh. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I only birthed children during pandemics. <laughs> right. um, Hopefully we'll say pretty soon. Do you remember this uh, coronavirus? Yeah, Hopefully. exactly. Yeah. Three, anybody three, three flus back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, um, so I gave birth to my son, Wesley, during the swine flu, and I became a nervous wreck. It was nothing like what we're experiencing now. I wouldn't let people hold him. I was scouring the baseboards. I would stay up all night checking his breathing. I'd put my hand on his chest Mm -hmm. and I was a wreck. I remember crying all the time. Um, 
and just saying to my husband, like, if something ever happens to him, I don't want to be here anymore. That terrifies me. Like that terrifies me that he has, am I going to be, is this how I'm always going to feel? Am I going to live in fear for the rest of my life that I have something too valuable to lose? Mm. Am I just going to stay stuck in this space of fear? And I think that to a certain extent, we are all there all the time. You know, once you become a parent, once you love something that much, I think that postpartum makes you be trapped there Mm -hmm. and puts a magnifying glass on it. And after I got therapy and medication and, you know, took care of myself, I was able to crawl out of that place and um, the fear eventually subsided, but my capacity to love only magnified for him and then with each kid. Mm -hmm. And the more, the more we love, the more we have to lose. And so that fear is there for all of us all the time. And Mm -hmm. that fear of what we could lose is just showing us how much we're loving. Mm -hmm. It just is. And, and sometimes we lose what we love the most. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we do. And I'm not the first and I won't be the last. And I'm certainly not even small part of a small group. There are so, putting myself out there, one of the most heartbreaking parts is seeing all the comments come through of me too. And you just don't realize how many people are walking around in this world carrying this. Like I I walk into a supermarket now and I look around and I have my mask on and I'm scanning the supermarket and I find myself thinking, how many people in here have lost a child? How many people in here are widowed? How many people in here just lost somebody to the pandemic? Like I'm thinking this all the time because I will walk by somebody in the supermarket now and I'll smile at them and they don't smile back. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, if they knew what I had just gone through, Mm -hmm. they would smile at me. They would be (laughs) smiling back. If they knew what I had just experienced, they would be smiling. And then it makes me think, how often do we walk around not trying to think about what other people are going through, Mm -hmm. not trying to think about smiling back, Mm -hmm. not realizing that every single person has a pain like this. Mm -hmm. And I spent, I've spent my whole life up until this moment measuring my pain against somebody else's. Mm -hmm whether my pain was greater than theirs or whether it was, I don't know if I could survive. Like Mm -hmm. you guys said, I don't know if I could live that or I can't imagine what you're going through. I can't imagine how you feel right now. And after this happened, that changed for me. Mm -hmm. And I had this epiphany that pain is actually the thing with the power to unify us more than anything else. I Mm. even think more than love Mm. because we all love different things and we all love differently. And, but pain is universal Mm -hmm. and pain is unavoidable. We will all experience it every single one of us. But for some reason, it is the thing, like you guys mentioned at the beginning of this, We don't know what to say to somebody when they're in a pain like this. We don't know what to say. How is it? And I never knew what to say. I still don't oftentimes. How is it that the most unifying 
thing in this world, as well as the most universal thing in this world, the thing that every one of us is guaranteed to experience is the thing that we're most uncomfortable to talk about and we don't know how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And that has become sort of my new thing to figure out and something I'm determined to make part of her legacy Mm -hmm. is we got to figure out how to talk about this. Mm -hmm. We have to feel comfortable talking about it. We have to feel comfortable not knowing the right things to say. Mm -hmm. We have to be more willing to step into somebody else's pain and not take it personally if they're Mm -hmm. offended or if we don't do it the right way because we won't do it the right way every time. What do people do? What should people say though? What's the best thing to say? Because I think when you're in... Yeah. In from the outside, you feel like you're going to say the wrong thing or yeah. the thing you're saying is not comforting enough, you know, and it, you and don't want to say the said, wrong yeah. thing. And Ashley, you even said like, you know, your daughter reminds me of Stevie. And the funny thing is we were actually going to call my second daughter, Stevie. Um, all the pictures that I saved was her name was Stevie. And then John Lennon was playing and we called her Lennon. So it does. It's it, it's a same sort of uh, C-section type story. But I even thought like when you texted that, I'm like, what should I say? Mm -hmm. Because it's so painful. So Mm -hmm. what should people say? Um, That's what is so tricky is that there is not a manual for this. It's we're learning. We have to teach the world a new language and not a script. It's a new language. And Meaning I can't give you specific words because for me, when somebody tells me that their daughter um, reminds them of Stevie or when they send me a picture of their kid or when they send me a memory of her or when I get stopped in every freaking store I go to by complete strangers now because this is my new reality. um, There are a lot of grieving mothers who that would not help them in their grief and it would be heavier and they don't want to see your three-year-olds. They don't want Mm. to see another little girl with curly hair and bright blue eyes. It'll break them. And um, they don't want to be stopped in the store and told what an impact, you know, your story and your daughter has had on their life and the way they parent. Like Mm -hmm. it's too much for me. It's the complete opposite for me. I tell everybody, show me your kids. All I want to do is um, be around other people's kids right now. Mm-hmm. I see them completely differently. I I feel like a different part of me has opened um, and able to receive a different, more sacred part of kids that I didn't have access to before. And it is so healing for me. And when I see another kid that reminds me of Stevie, I feel like it's a gift that I get to catch glimpses of her in the spirits of others. I don't, I don't look at your kids and think they're Stevie. I look at them and I think like she lives on her spirit lives on because look at these amazing souls who are going to do everything she didn't get to do. And I don't resent that. I'm grateful for that. But I don't want to push what has been healing for me onto somebody else when that's not what works for them. And I have crossed other women on this journey who are remarkable souls who grieve entirely different than me. And so the advice I would give you for me won't work on them. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it takes me back to it's not a script, it's a language. And we need to learn the language of grief 
so that when we're talking to different people, we can understand them. Mm -hmm. We understand their pain by what they say or what they don't say. And we can show up for them in that capacity. But for the most part, the best thing you can do for somebody is listen Mm. to not judge any way that they are Mm. grieving, to not judge it. I have a lot of people who care deeply about us in our life who have been so generous and kind and have shown up and have sent us meals and have, you know, organized campaigns for us and have cried with us and have sent us beautiful, amazing gifts in her honor, who have also on the backside to others had opinions about the way that we grieve Mm -hmm. or who have screenshotted words of mine or photos of mine and shared them in past judgment. And I know that I only know a fraction of the scale upon which this occurs. I know that that is rampant, that everyone has opinion. I've received hate mail. I've received all of the things about judgments about the way that I grieve. And I am okay because I have been prepared for this. I made myself vulnerable for 10 years before this happened to us. I you know, was open about our journey with autism and received a lot of criticism. I have shared very specific details of my OCD and anxiety and my upbringing. And I've put myself out there to receive that criticism, but that is not most, most people have not been prepared. Mm -hmm. And when you lose a child, you have a spotlight on you that you did not ask for. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, And that comes with a lot of pressure that a lot of people were not prepared to handle and certainly didn't sign up for. I think in a lot of ways, I signed up for this. Mm -hmm. I didn't sign up to lose a child, but I signed up to speak about it. And and not everyone did. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be sensitive to that. You know, you were able through social media um, to galvanize so many people about your story and about Stevie. I know um, just personally for us, my daughter and I bought the Stars for Stevie t-shirt and we went to Zion this summer and we took a little hike up one of the mountains and we just kind of said a little prayer for Stevie. I mean, even though we had never met you, just listening to your story and wanting to embrace you guys meant a lot, you know, and um for you, I mean, what has this journey taught you about yourself? Um, I look in the mirror now. And to be honest, it's with a lot of disbelief. And I say this with the purest of humility, I swear. I look at myself and I... I know myself now and I also don't recognize myself and I don't know how that's possible. Like I look in the mirror and I say, you always knew you were capable of being this strong, but I also don't recognize who I am because I didn't get to be strong on my own terms. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of us, when we go on a journey of like, gosh, we decide it, you know, we decide, we decide to break under the pressure or we decide to rise up and be strong. And I feel like, I don't feel like I decided this for myself. I mean, I, I did, but it doesn't feel like that yet because I could have handled this very differently. Mm -hmm. I could have been really angry. 
I haven't been angry yet. I don't know how that's possible. I've been frustrated. I've been full of a lot of energy, but I've ne- I have not been angry. And that is never anything I would have imagined for myself in a situation like this. But I have learned that we're all given very, very, very different gifts and opportunities in this life. And that when we're explained that when we're little girls, we are explained it in a very fairy tale esque sort of way. Like you're beautiful, so you will have grand influence. You're a great athlete, so you will do this. You're a phenomenal writer, so you will go on to, but it's never told to us that the real impact that we're going to make is when we take those talents and those gifts and we refine them with pain, that they're all useless until they hurt us. Like there's nothing you can do with your beauty or with your talents or with your voice until you've hurt and you have something to say. And I think that that's what I've learned about myself is that, and that I'm still learning, is I need to be more brave to say the things that I've learned and that I'm feeling, even if they're not always received, even if they're not always popular. Um, And I've never been that brave. You know, I've only shared enough that that I can't. You've been that yeah. brave. You have. Uh, <laughs> thank more you. Than that more than brave. Yeah. Um, thank you. You said that you now feel like, and I always think about this when I see someone lose a child and then they have another child. And I always think, you know, um, when I went through miscarriages, my husband, we still have one of the the fetuses that we have not buried and um, it's quite a big fetus. And I feel like Lennon wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that experience. Yeah. But how, I can't stop crying. Um, How, if you have another child, is that what you're looking towards and is that what you want? And how is that process now that you've lost a child? And also you said you had really hard pregnancies. How is that process? And what happens when you have a new child, if that happens, does the pain feel worth it? You know, I don't even know what the question is here, but that child wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Stevie. Yeah. You know, and my little girl, I think Lennon wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the, for our other lost um, fetuses or whatever you want to call them. I agree with you completely. And I do think that that's true. I don't think Lennon would be here if it weren't for each of those Mm -hmm. experiences that you had that led up to this. And I think that that was all so intentional. And I'm sure, you know, you've experienced, like you see her through a lens that, you wouldn't have had access to without those experiences Mm -hmm. and with an appreciation um, that you wouldn't have had, I don't think. And I think similarly, you know, when we delivered Stevie, I also had my 
tubes removed in that C-section, knowing that my doctor was like, you cannot be pregnant again. We cannot go through this ever again. You're done. And I knew I couldn't go through it again, even if I could physically sustain it, which wasn't likely. Um, I couldn't put my family through losing me for an entire year again. Mm -hmm. My boys, especially my oldest, I couldn't, like he had already had to do it twice. He had already had to lose me for two years of his life that if I did that again to him, it wouldn't be fair. And um, so I confidently told them, you can take out my tubes. Mm -hmm. Each With each pregnancy, I went into it thinking this could be my last pregnancy. I'll see how I feel. Mm -hmm. And when Sawyer, because my pregnancy was Sawyer, he's my middle, was so difficult. I was like, I think this is it, Ben. I don't think we're going to do this again. And they pulled him out of me and they put him on my chest. And I looked at him and I said, dang it, we're doing this again. I like, we are, I just know, I like, I feel it. And I know there's another one and I know, I know it. And then we did it again with Stevie and I had already signed the paperwork that said, take out my tubes. And when they put her on my chest, there was no sense that we were done to me, like none. And I knew I would never be pregnant again, but I, to me, it didn't mean we were never going to have another child. I didn't, I just didn't know what that looked like. And my husband and I had always said, we're not making plans right now because we're not ready for that, but we are always open. And so we always stayed open and the conversation was always open to, hush, it could look like this or it could look like that. And we stayed open. And after losing Stevie, that was a really sensitive part of what we had to talk about because we we never want to replace her. Mm-hmm. And that's not what it would be for. And it was immediate. We, before, right before Stevie got sick, we were feeling it. We were feeling ready for another baby. And after losing her, it was only magnified because we didn't, we didn't just lose a child. We lost somebody who still depended on every single thing. And we, we had, we were still, we were raising elementary age school. I mean, elementary school age kids while having a toddler. And we didn't get to decide we were out of that phase yet. We didn't get to decide to tear down the crib or to put the diapers away or that we were done with babas and all of the things that come along with, you know, having a two and a half year old at that time we still very much wanted to be in that phase of parenthood. And overnight, all of that went away. Overnight, I became a mom who didn't, wasn't needed 24 seven. I wasn't making meals. I didn't have to wake up at five in the morning or in the middle of the night. All of that stuff just went away. And when you go from being a mom of a baby to not anymore, there's that hole. And I just wanted, initially, I just wanted to fill the hole with being needed again. And so a lot of my therapy was me knowing I needed to work through that because if I ever bring another baby into this world, it cannot be to fill a hole. Mm -hmm. I won't let it be to fill a hole, but I'm consumed by it. I was consumed by it right after she passed and I still am, but today it's different. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done the work. I have, the hole will never be filled, but I have, 
built up some pretty good scar tissue in that area in healthy ways. And now, you know, when and if we bring a baby into this world, it will be because we're both ready and it will be for the right reasons. And it will be because our hearts know that we have so much more love to give and that there is space in our home and in our family and we can like see it. But are we terrified that, um, you know, putting ourselves out there again comes at a risk Mm -hmm. and we're not young, we're not getting any younger Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the route we would have to take, whether it be through adoption or surrogacy, um, you know, both of those come with a lot of loss and pain and disappointment. Mm-hmm. And Ben and I have to know what I say to him all the time because he's like, I'm ready. I want a baby. And I say, I know you want a baby, but you have to also tell me that you're ready to lose it all mm-hmm. because that's also a possibility. And if there's any chance that losing it all again, could break you and could mean that I would lose you too, then we can't do this yet. You have to tell me that you could survive losing it all mm-hmm. and that you won't leave me. And I don't mean physically leave me. I tell him all the time, like, I cannot lose you too. And that was the day that um, we took Stevie to the hospital. The day that I took her, we had gotten into a little argument about it. And as soon as we found out the news, that argument was out the window and completely trivial. And I just looked at him and I said, we will not fight about this. And I cannot lose you too. Just promise me that this will not break us and that I will not lose you to this because I can't lose her and lose you. Yeah. And that was a promise we made each other, you know? Um, and that's the promise that we will stand by when and if we bring another kiddo into this world. You know, anyone who's followed you and followed the story knows, and it's clear that you're a religious person, you're a faithful person, you're spiritual, and it really comes through the way you kind of talk about your faith, um, especially through this process is so beautiful and the strength that you pull from it. Um, but were there times that you questioned God or questioned, you know, your faith or doubted, you know, doubted the faith and doubted um, God's plan? Um, that's a great question. And I think that I, I always hesitate to answer this. I hesitate to answer this because I don't want my experience to, I always want my experience to make someone else feel less alone, not discouraged. Mm -hmm. Um, and this worries me that it will discourage other people because I didn't, um, I never did question that. Mm -hmm. I never questioned him. Um, I didn't, I didn't ever understand it. Mm-hmm. it. I, I didn't understand it. It was happening, but I didn't question it. I don't think that that's normal. Um, my husband did question it. My husband did get angry. The difference may be that I was an atheist for many, many years of my life. Mm-hmm. And I never had a foundation of faith. And my husband was raised from birth with a very solid foundation of faith mm-hmm. and a very faithful family. And um, I did not you know, start to have this belief in any sort of higher power until I was in college after my best friend unexpectedly passed away. And we were both atheists and she was an atheist too. And we 
were also very strong personalities and very vocal about our atheism. And Mm -hmm. I was a religious studies minor and it wasn't so that I could better understand religion. It was so that I could tell everybody why they were all so stupid (laughs) to just, to just how like the thought, the thought of surrendering control of my own life to anything else felt very, very weak to me through all of my teenage years and through all of my more immature, invincible years, that just felt like the ultimate weakness. Why would I surrender control over my own life to something that I can't see or touch? And what gives him the right to be the all-knowing? Like I, I was very adamant about it. And so was she, and we both were. And she was 19 when she passed away. We were both 19 and it messed with me. And I remember um, becoming incredibly introverted in that time and getting really quiet. And that was the beginning of my faith journey because for me, there was no explanation for her being taken at such a young age. And she was an incredible young woman. She was going to do amazing things and and she was a light to so many and an advocate to kids with special needs. Like she was just this incredible human and soul. And to just be taken without warning um, was the ultimate injustice. And I couldn't see, I couldn't accept that it wasn't for a greater purpose. Mm-hmm. And I needed there to be meaning in her death. And according to everything I believed at that time, there was no meaning in her death. It was just arbitrary. And I remember thinking, then what the hell is the point? Mm -hmm. Why am I even doing this if there is not meaning behind immeasurable love and bottomless loss? Like if there's not meaning behind those things, then I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. Like I'm not Mm -hmm. signing up for this. And that began, that became the beginning of my journey of faith was finding meaning in her death Mm -hmm. and I remember, I see it now that I was praying, but I would go walk the beaches. I was at UC Santa Barbara at the time before SC. Mm -hmm. And I would walk on those beaches and I would talk to her. And I would just ask her like, please tell me that there's more. Please tell me that like you had to go be somewhere else because you're doing some important work somewhere else. Please tell me this, please tell me. And in little ways, like over the years, the answers would start to come to me. And I knew, you know, I believe that they were coming from her. And that was the beginning of my belief in a higher power. And I think that that was just another one of those things that prepared me for this. And that in so many ways, when Stevie passed, Liz, who was my friend, um, I like, I knew she was there. Like I felt her and I knew that they knew each other before Stevie came to me. And I knew that Liz was waiting there for her. Mm-hmm. And I knew that they had a similar legacy and, and that they're sat, I feel like they signed up to sacrifice so that other people could remember how to live, mm-hmm. like remember how to freaking live. And if I have to die so that you remember how to live, okay, then I'll do it. And I think that, you know, I was blessed to have to navigate that at a young age with a best friend so that it could prepare me a little bit to see the purpose in this, Mm -hmm. to see the purpose in her. So interesting about faith because I was raised very Christian and it's not that I don't believe, I I do. But 
sometimes for me, the more questions, the more answers lead to more questions. And I, you know, I like to have control of everything (laughs) and faith is, faith is giving up control. Um, But I always say to myself, if you're right, then you lived a better life. And if you're wrong, you lived a better life. So isn't it worth believing in something, something greater? Because if you're wrong, it doesn't matter. (laughs) And I know that's an interesting way to look at faith, but I'd rather live that there's something more than just this, than that um, I'm it, you know? The ultimate surrender. I, I share that exact same sentiment. And even though, you know, I have a very specific faith in what I believe and what I believe is next for me and for my family, you know, to kind of answer your questions earlier of, you know, did you ever doubt? And I said, no, you know, I, I will say that there were moments where I thought maybe it's different than how I always thought it was, or maybe it isn't exactly how I was taught, or maybe it isn't. And I won't know that until Mm -hmm. I'm there, but either way, the principles that I believe are the principles that are healing me Mm -hmm. and that will heal other people. And Mm -hmm. that is the whole freaking point. I think pain is the whole point of life. Mm -hmm. I think that we, we spend so much of our lives outrunning pain. Like we do everything to collect all what I call um, the get out of pain free cards, like that we can, and we avoid it at all costs. And we, we define like the ultimate life, the happily ever after is a life where we have managed to be free from pain. And everything that I've lived in my life has taught me the absolute opposite. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All the things that I would be the first to say, like, okay, God, take this from me. Like, don't make me have to live this are the things that have resulted in the parts of myself that I like the most mm-hmm. in a journey for my family that I'm the most grateful for mm-hmm. in an impact that I think is um, the strongest. All of those things have been birthed from pain. And, you know, in line with my faith, I think that if we didn't choose to come here, if we didn't sign up for this, we would have been stuck in a world where there was no pain. Mm-hmm. And then we wouldn't have ever had the capacity to know the joy mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. the pain. And that we were sent here not only to experience the pain, but to learn how to mold it into something beautiful mm-hmm. to help other people because pain is collective and we're here to help other people. And there's no better way to help somebody else than by taking our pain and applying it to theirs and connecting with them over theirs. I don't know. I just think it's the whole point. Connection, you know, I think that, you know, having a universal, like you said, pain is universal. And I think that Roxy and I put ourselves in your shoes and Mm -hmm. Our hearts are open and we are grateful for you as a human being to even be on this planet that God puts you on this planet Mm -hmm. and to share your story because, and this is not what it might be about for you, but 
you are changing people's lives Mm -hmm. and Stevie's changing people's lives. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, um, I have one final thought that I hope to share because I think that it was your question. And I think it's also a lot of people's questions of like, what do we say? And the number one thing people say is, I can't imagine how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And my personal thoughts on this are that everyone actually does know exactly how I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is all all of our pain is relative Mm -hmm. and every, not one of us has lived a life free from pain. Mm -hmm. So whatever before experiencing this, I had another greater pain that was horrible, that was gut-wrenching, that was bottom me out, debilitating, horrible thing. We all have it. Mm-hmm. And then this happened. And then this was harder. Mm-hmm. And then that became my greater pain. But every one of us has our greater pain. And it's all we know. Mm-hmm. It's the greatest thing we know. And so your greatest pain and your greatest pain and my greatest pain are all equal. They're not meant to be measured against another's. All that we have to do is when we look at somebody living their greatest pain, we just have to know, we just have to remember what our greatest pain feels like and know that that's what they're going through. Mm -hmm. And when we look at it that way, instead of making ourselves unqualified Mm -hmm. to help somebody who's Mm -hmm. experienced more pain than us, air quotes, um, instead of making ourselves unqualified by doing that, you're just alienating the person going through that pain and making them feel so alone in it. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I look around and I have accepted that every person I'm looking at in a room does know my pain because they have lived their own worst pain. Mm -hmm. My grief journey is so much less lonely. My ability to connect Mm -hmm. with other people's pain in that capacity grows exponentially when I do that. Mm -hmm. But the more of us willing to do that and willing to change that narrative in our head instead of making ourselves unqualified mm-hmm. to help somebody else who we think has endured more than us. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to qualify ourselves. Mm-hmm. We have to qualify ourselves. And I think too, going along with what you're saying, um, if somebody doesn't feel comfortable saying anything, then just listen, right? Yeah. Listen to people talk, listen to them, mm-hmm. you know, share what they want to share and share their grief and share their stories. Just be a listening ear, you know? Yeah. Hold space for them. Space for them. Thank you everyone for listening to this podcast. Um, Please share this story. um, Subscribe, uh, pass this story on to anyone who's going through anything or just needs to learn a little bit more about vulnerability and being human. Um, And we are Women on Top Official on Instagram. And Women on Top Podcast on Facebook. And um, you can always find Ashley at Little Miss Mama. Um, mm-hmm. on Instagram. Is there anywhere else people should look for you? It's littlemissmama.com and littlemissmama on Instagram. However, I spell mama incorrectly. <laughs> so it's littlemissmissmomma. That's it. right. That sounds right to me. That's right. <laughs> Everybody searches it the other way. So, <laughs> but thank you. Absolutely. And I am Taman Sursok. And I'm Roxy Manning. And we are women. women. On top.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.